The threat of coronavirus has people working from home distracted and anxious, opening the door to cyber scams. We're seeing a substantial increase in malware using COVID-19 as a watering hole to lure victims into getting attacked. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, staying safe online and how personal data is being used to track COVID-19. Also today, as we're cooped up inside and free to stream, a pair of cultural critics share some options for the best quarantainment and how two families rallied to turn a canceled wedding into a celebration to remember in less than 24 hours. I said, oh my goodness, I, I think my heart just skipped some beats, but just tell me what you want to do and we'll see what how we can make it happen. Love in a time of quarantine, that story and more coming up after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. While online scams are always a danger, malware attacks and phishing schemes have skyrocketed in the past two weeks. Millions of Americans working and learning from home to help halt the spread of coronavirus don't have the protections or IT help found in most offices and schools. And in some countries, the virus has upped the ante on government surveillance of online activity. Joining me via Skype to talk about data privacy and security during the pandemic is Brendan Saltaformaggio. He's professor of cybersecurity at Georgia Tech. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also with us via Skype, Alfred Ng, senior reporter with CNET News, specializing in security and privacy. Alfred, thanks for taking the time. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, I'm going to start with you, Brandon. The societal effects from the coronavirus pandemic are unlike anything that we have seen in history. But what is it about this kind of large-scale crisis that makes these kind of attacks more common? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're seeing a substantial increase in malware using COVID-19 as a watering hole to lure victims into getting attacked. That's primarily because Everyone is really geared up and focused right now, trying to get as much information as they can on the COVID-19 virus. And that really leads people to being more susceptible to clicking on links or downloading files or installing applications that may purport to have information on the virus, but really just contain attacks that are planted there. So we're all aware of these kind of digital dangers, large-scale hacks, data breaches. So what are some of the most common attacks that individual citizens might face right now, or how are they seeing them? So what we're seeing is a huge uptick in both emails and also online websites forging information about COVID-19 to try to lure people to click on uh, links and visit websites that are infected with malware. And once you click on one of those links or visit one of those websites, attackers can pretty much get a window into your computer, stealing your information like credit card numbers or passwords, things of that sort. So for you, Alfred, alongside fears of hacking, there have been concerns of online tracking. Some governments across the globe are using technology, for example, smartphone location data, to get a better sense of the spread of the virus. What's happening and where? So we were seeing this first in China and in South Korea and Singapore, where they were using smartphone location data to kind of get a look at clusters where people were being quarantined, if people were obeying quarantine rules, and also to do contact tracing, which is a way of being able to track who somebody who might have had uh, coronavirus 
um, had been in contact with because those are the people that you would want to keep quarantined and keep away from everybody. The technology has been a really helpful way to to keep a log of that and to help manage uh, health policies in a country. And we're starting to see that kind of data being used by governments in Europe as well. So I believe last week in Italy, the mobile phone providers there have been giving basically anonymized or aggregated data uh, in the form of a heat map to show the whole areas and regions where people are supposed to be. And if the heat map is not lit up, then it would mean that, you know, there's not that many people here. And that's a good thing, right? They want to keep people away from movie theaters. They want to keep them away from uh, the streets, anywhere that they don't have to be, basically. And the concern around that, though, is that this is a lot of power for any government to be able to hold to see all these people and all their location data in one area. And it's fair to say that, you know, we need to worry about protecting lives more than protecting data right now. But the main concern from a lot of privacy advocates that I've spoken with is that surveillance infrastructure doesn't just up and disappear once the threat is gone. Like there's many times where it is repurposed and then reused for things that it was not intended to when it was first rolled out. Right. I want to put a pin in that and come back to it. But you said something that came up that I wanted to check on. From your article, I see that when there's a confirmed case of coronavirus, the South Korean government might use, for example, a person's credit card data to track their movements, establishing where they've been and where people might have been infected. In Italy, officials using mobile phone data to see if citizens are complying with these government lockdowns. Now, the first is individual data. The second, you mentioned something called aggregate data. So can you distinguish those for us? Yeah, absolutely. So aggregate data is essentially data that's collected in a cluster to show trends, right? So Google actually does this a lot. If you've ever gone on Google Maps and it tells you a certain highway is really crowded or it tells you that a bar is full of people right now, that's using aggregated data. It's not saying, you know, John, Mary, and Joseph are at this highway. It's saying we have three people at this highway. We're not going to tell you any personal information about them, but you should know that there are three people at this highway. So that's kind of a very basic breakdown of what aggregated data is. Um, And that is the data that's currently being offered. They're not giving individual data uh, on that, which is obviously a lot more personal and has a lot more privacy concerns. I'm thinking South Korea, China, Taiwan, Singapore have, at this writing, been largely able to halt the spread of the virus. So, Brendan, any evidence that this tracking is actually playing a role? It certainly could. Um, So governments are looking for this data now to essentially ensure that citizens are staying home and try to understand what populations they might need to reach out to to push you to continue to stay at home and shelter in place. Um, Like the other guests said, though, these sorts of measures do not just go away. And so can the government have unrestricted access to your phone's location data? Right now, it may be working to flatten the curve, but that same power could be misused later on. It's very difficult to close the door once it's been opened. We're talking about cybersecurity during the coronavirus pandemic with Alfred Ng, senior reporter at CNET News, and Brendan Saltaformaggio. He's professor at Georgia Tech School of Electrical and Computer Engineering. So there are clearly benefits to tracking where populations are, but as you said, it also raises huge concerns around digital privacy. Alfred, how are citizens responding to these surveillance techniques? 
Well, citizens are responding to it differently in different countries. So in Singapore, for example, they released an app called Trace Together, and that's voluntary where you have to download it yourself. You have to put it on your phone. The Singaporean government has been launching a, a public health campaign around it, urging a lot of people to download it. Um, and I understand that the Singapore government is also aware of privacy concerns with its tracking app, and they even have a whole section on its FAQ about it. And one of their uh, senior health officials talked about it uh, when they first debuted the app, saying that, you know, we will delete this app um, once this pandemic is over and we will tell everyone how to delete this data off of their phone. But yeah, a lot of citizens are either volunteering to give their data up or they just don't know that their data is really being taken. I haven't seen a lot of uproar among civilians with, with this kind of data requests. Uh, I mean, it's also fair to say that, you know, these data requests haven't really gotten large scale in the U.S. yet, partially because the pandemic hasn't hit the U.S. as badly as it has hit other countries. Um, so that is where one of the bigger challenges to privacy remains with tracking COVID-19. Well, of course, the U.S. prides itself on protection of personal liberties. So what would that mean if the government here in the U.S. tried to employ some of these data tracking tactics? Brendan, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, what we really don't want is for state and federal governments to start passing ill-conceived laws that are going to endanger our privacy long term. It's very easy to kind of a knee-jerk reaction here and say, well, let's share all of that location data with the government. And, you know, many countries are adopting apps that track citizens during this quarantine. In the U.S., we don't need those measures because we've been sharing our location with Google Maps and Facebook for years now. But we don't want the government to be able to basically turn these applications into tracking devices down the road. And we need to be sure that whatever bending we do of the rules right now can easily be unbent after this crisis. Well, we've seen a lot of precedents knocked down in the last couple of weeks. The WHO's director general said there needed to be more technological measures for tracking the coronavirus outbreak. Do you have any idea, either of you, whether or not this is being discussed here in the U.S., going beyond that voluntary crowdsourcing of information? So the White House has been in conversations with basically every major tech provider, and that's including Facebook and Google, um, Amazon, Apple as well, about you know what kind of data they would be able to provide um, to help track the coronavirus outbreak. I know Google has said that it is exploring its options, and it would be pretty simple for Google to do that um, if it's aggregated data, considering that they're already doing this for highways and malls and just crowded areas in general. I think the idea would just be to shift the focus of that onto areas that should be quarantined. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg on a call last week said that they have not provided any data with Facebook and they're not considering providing any data without the consent of people. And one of the projects that Facebook talks about that could be used for this is its data for good project, which they have been giving to researchers in the past to track other outbreaks. But that's the same thing. It's anonymized, aggregated data, and it's also all opt-in. People that are in the middle of an epidemic outbreak are the ones that have to say, here, take our data. So the idea would be the government is relying on big tech to do this rather than building an app itself in the U.S., 
Well, and we know what the record has been with Apple's unwillingness to release people's private data or even unlock their phones. Brendan, any thoughts on that? Yeah, the rule of thumb really needs to be if you wouldn't publish it on the internet for everyone, then it probably shouldn't be shared freely with the government without restriction. And so that's the same thing as sharing that aggregated data, showing where large groups of anonymized individuals are versus giving you fine-grained access to individual records with people's identifiable information tied to them. Well, we want to reemphasize that there's been no official government surveillance here in the U.S., though we have seen some healthcare privacy rules get relaxed in order to help patients connect with doctors via platforms, even like Facebook or Google video calls. Now, both of you have mentioned concerns about when these lapse, like concerns after the Patriot Act, after 9-11, there was a fear that once the floodgates were open, they would not close. So is there any danger of connecting on platforms that weren't necessarily built to protect private health information? Yeah, I think HIPAA exists for a reason. And with it comes these privacy and security standards. And when you look at something like Zoom, which has had several privacy concerns raised in the last few days, that brings an issue for doctors and patients who just want to talk with their doctor online and you know get something checked out that they don't need to come into the hospital for. But then it gets to an idea of, okay, well, what is going to happen with this data? Why does Zoom need to know what other web pages I'm looking on during uh, my time with my doctor? And that's why there's these privacy standards and you're only able to use approved video teleconferencing apps. And I understand why the Department of Health and Human Services decided to waive HIPAA violation penalties so pe- more people could get in touch with their doctor online. But I do think that, you know, once the pandemic is over, hopefully, these rules and these uh, restrictions that are being lifted are put back in place and enforced the way that they should be. Hmm. It's going to require a lot of trust. In the meantime, is there anything a citizen can do to protect their private data at this time in this sense? Sure, absolutely. So just remaining very mindful of your cybersecurity hygiene when you're online, checking on links and on files before you click that link or download that file or install a new application, verify what's behind that, right? If you're looking for information on COVID-19, stick to websites of trusted sources, you know, cdc.gov, right? This is a .gov domain and you can trust that there's security in place there versus xyzcovid19info.com. That's far more suspicious and you're going to risk infecting your computer with malware visiting these phishing websites. So, so far, governments are using this kind of data for good, but where is the line in terms of what is too much? I think we've crossed that line already, even before the pandemic happened. A lot of the data that's being requested, you know, this specific location data or aggregated amounts of data are are things that already happen currently for the advertising industry, as well as mobile carriers. And I think the concern now is that the government is going to get access to that without a warrant, but we have definitely crossed that line already in terms of privacy. Brendan, anything you want to add? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The United States really lags behind a number of other countries in terms of data privacy uh, and specifically laws and creating 
individual units of the government that are responsible for protecting the online privacy of its citizens. This is a time where such an organization would step in and start to draw that line very clearly and transparently. But in the United States, it's pretty much left up to individual states or individual organizations to draw the online privacy line wherever they choose to. And so that makes it very difficult for citizens to understand what they're sharing and who's going to have access to it. And hopefully this pandemic sheds some light on that problem and we can start passing more common sense online privacy laws in the future. Uh, Does your cat have any last words here? Uh, I will ask, but she's uh, away from the door now. (laughs) I want to thank you both for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's Alfred Ng, senior reporter at CNET News, and Brendan Saltaformaggio, professor of cybersecurity at Georgia Tech. As we continue to cover the coronavirus pandemic and its effects around the country and the state, you can expect to hear more deep dive conversations during On Second Thought. But I want to let you know about GPB's new video series to help keep you up with the latest information about COVID-19. It's called What You Need to Know, Coronavirus, brief conversations with experts on what they're seeing as the pandemic unfolds. Like Emory University professor and Grady Health System doctor Carlos Del Rio on why he and others think Georgia is nearing a point of no return. We need to tell people the truth and say, look, this is going to be rough, but also, you know, we are going to get over this, but we all have to do it together. You can find links to that conversation and other episodes on GPB's YouTube channel or at gpb.org virus. Coming up, how communities and families and individuals are responding to the coronavirus and helping those in need. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us. We'll be back after the break with more on Second Thought. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Like many of you, I've just ended another work week of self-isolation. All of us at GPB have been covering the spread of the virus nonstop. And along the way, I've heard many stories about the extraordinary ways that people are reaching out to support others in a time of crisis. People like Terrence Lester, founder and executive director of Love Beyond Walls. That's a nonprofit focused on providing services and bringing dignity to people experiencing homelessness. And right now that means providing a way to wash their hands. One of the biggest challenges is a lack of access to water and soap with public spaces and businesses being shut down. Uh, People experiencing homelessness are literally out there without any access to uh, running water. And the news reports keeps telling us to make sure that we constantly wash our hands to protect ourselves from contracting uh, the coronavirus. And so as we're complaining about having to stay inside, there's a little over half a million people who would probably give anything to have a safe, warm place to lay their heads and also wash their hands to protect themselves. 
we started to dream about how could we uh, get water and soap, uh, these basic human rights to people who need access to these things to keep themselves protected. So our organization uh, came up with a, a campaign called Love Sinks In. We have been placing portable hand-washing sinks around the city that gives a person the ability to walk up to it and step on a pedal which shoots water up through the nozzle and it has a soap dispenser and they're able to wash their hands. So far we've placed about 15 around the city. Uh, sometimes there are long lines of people waiting just to wash their hands. There's a, a bunch of sorrow. Uh, when you think about it, many people experiencing homelessness have community with the commuters that go back and forth to work. Uh, there are some commuters that uh, know them by name. Uh, they'll speak or offer uh, some assistance, uh, whether it's public transportation or even food resources. Uh, some people find joy in just knowing that someone acknowledges them, right? And so uh, many of our friends out on the street have expressed even more social isolation. We've been talking about this issue of social distancing, right? Uh, but there's a, a homeless population of people that have been dealing with social distancing by default long before the coronavirus. When people walk by that social distancing, when people cross the street, uh, when they see people who are experiencing homelessness, that's social distancing. When businesses do not prohibit people to come in and ask for a cup of water or use the restroom because you're experiencing homelessness, uh, that's social distancing. And what has happened is this social distancing has compounded on the social isolation they've experienced. I think we're at a critical moment in a time in history where uh, we have got to start seeing people as having worth and value in all uh, sectors of society and really focus in on the whole community, including people who are living on the streets. Another story I came across is about two families who rallied to pull together a wedding in less than 24 hours. Meet the now newlyweds. I am Ellen Brown. I live in Atlanta. And I'm Chase Brown, and I also live in Atlanta. Ellen and Chase were set to tie the knot this weekend, Saturday, March 28th, in Savannah. But then... My administration is recommending that all Americans, including the young and healthy, work to engage in schooling from home when possible, avoid gathering in groups of more than 10 people, avoid... The big day they'd been planning since last April was quickly looking less likely. On Monday, March 16th, their wedding planner called after learning that probate courts were likely to be closed for weeks and that they'd better act fast to get their marriage license. That's when Chase and Ellen realized there was another solution. We got off the phone and, and I just looked at Chase and, and I was like, why don't we just get married tomorrow? <laughs> we talked about it for a second and what it was all about was us joining together in marriage. And so I said, yeah, let's let's go ahead and do it. With the date moved up, the clock was ticking. Time to call in reinforcements, or better yet, the mother of the groom. Hello, I'm Katherine Brown, and we live in Atlanta, Georgia. And the kids called at about 5.25 p.m. and said, Mom, we've decided we're going to get married tomorrow, no matter what. I said, oh, my goodness, 
I think my heart just skipped some beats, but just tell me what you want to do and we'll see what, how we can make it happen. They were off and the speed wedding was on at Catherine and her husband's place in Atlanta. I thought, what do I have to do and how are they going to do this? First, they needed a venue. Thankfully, Chase's aunt is very involved at Peachtree Church. She called Pastor Richard Conwisher to see if he could fit them in. He said if they can meet at 4.15, we can all gather in the chapel and make this thing happen. My wheels began spinning and I thought, well, you need a cake. Well, at that point, the bakeries were closed because by this time it was getting to be 7 p.m. I have a friend who prints napkins out of her home, and I thought, well, that would be a touch. We called my hairdresser, who is also Ellen's hairdresser, and they said, come in at 1 o'clock. We will make you beautiful, because, of course, every girl needs to have her hair done on her wedding day to feel beautiful. (laughs) And, oh, my gosh. On Tuesday, St. Patrick's Day, Laura Pierce Jewelers opened up their store to loan a ring to the bride. Rhodes Bakery said they could whip up a small cake— In fact, every call Catherine made was met with an emphatic yes. Um, The flowers were the best. My sister-in-law texted everyone on her cul-de-sac and said, we're going to have a wedding, briefly told the story. They said, come pick whatever you want. She actually, when she walked out of her home, she said many were standing outside of their houses with clippers and helping her cut flowers. So bouquet and boutonnieres ready but everything still hung on getting a marriage license. Chase and Ellen were at the door of the DeKalb County Courthouse when it opened. They got the stamp, snapped a selfie, and cued Ellen's family to drive in from North Carolina. Then they all began to arrive, and they all changed clothes at our house. We had a great time. The bride came over with her two sisters and her mom. Yeah, I I mean, we basically took over their whole basement and turned it into a bridal suite. The pared-down guests sat six feet apart in the Kellett Chapel at Peachtree Church. Church member Will Brown heard the story and offered to play guitar. He sang, Be Thou My Vision, Lord You Are, as Ellen walked down the aisle. He showed up just in, like, a T-shirt and jeans. And then it was back to the Browns for the small but meaningful reception. We we met in a pizza place in Savannah, so to pay homage to the, the origins of our relationship, we threw some Costco pizzas in the oven and opened some bottles of wine and turned up the music and danced in my parents' living room and just had a good time with our family. <laughs> The new Mr. and Mrs. Brown danced their first dance to Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell's If I Could Build the Whole World Around You from a smartphone instead of a wedding band. One of the many planned details that no longer seem so critical. And I mean, they just really made it very special for us in a very short amount of time. It truly looked like we had planned this for at least a month, not six hours. And with that, a Monday afternoon dilemma turned into a joyful and intimate Tuesday celebration. And now a St. Patrick's Day anniversary to tell the grandkids about. I have two older sisters who are both married and they both had weddings. And they have been telling me throughout this whole process, you know, something is not going to go the way you planned it. (laughs) Not quite what I had in mind going wrong. (laughs) Well, maybe, you know, the flowers weren't going to be exactly what we pictured or, you know, we were going to have some kind of wardrobe malfunction. But I would say 
um, that was a great piece of advice. And it's not always going to turn out the way you want it, but it turns out the way it's supposed to be. I confess, when Catherine told me the story, I got downright weepy. I hope everybody in all of this does find a little bright spot to everything that we may be shorted on or have to give up, birthdays, families, etc. We cried so many tears of sadness Monday and joy on Tuesday. And, you know, as corny as it is, I think truly all you need is love, as the song goes. Thanks to Catherine, Chase, and Ellen Brown for sharing the lovely story of a private event at a time of public anxiety. They also shared some terrific photos from the day taken by Chase's sister, the professional photographer, Glennie Brown. You can see them at the On Second Thought Programs tab at gpbnews.org. And coming up, quarantainment. Some suggestions of things to watch during your self-isolation and sheltering in place. That's when On Second Thought continues. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A few weeks ago, screen time was blamed for keeping us apart. Now that millions of us are sequestered in our homes, our screens are bringing us together. Americans used to finding critical information online are also finding sources for connection and relief. From church services. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To opera and music. To meditation and exercise. Take a deep breath in through your nose and out of your mouth. The need and sources for quarantainment is vast. And joining me via Skype with some reflections and recommendations are Jason Evans, an Atlanta-based film and television critic. Jason, great to have you with us. Thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And how about your dog? Is he happy too? Yeah, you can hear him in the background. That's Cameron. And everyone should know I have a podcast and Cameron frequently guest stars on my podcast. Well, glad to have you with us, too. And Kalundra Smith, an Atlanta-based theater critic and arts journalist. Kalundra, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. So clearly, self-quarantine, shelter-in-place orders have highlighted the value of the Internet and entertainment streaming. I've received dozens of recommendations from people. But Jason, first of all, how are streaming companies responding to this moment? Uh, they're they're throttling back their services, believe it or not. The, um, the European governments asked Facebook, YouTube, and Netflix to calm their streams down a little bit to reduce the volume of content on their streams because they were afraid it was going to break the European internet. Um, each agreed to, to take things down just a little bit, uh, about 25%. It still means that people can get full HD when they watch these these different programs, but we here in America should be aware that... <laughs> that we are taxing the internet when we, when we are streaming. And oh my gosh, we are streaming like we never have before. I mean, streaming was already huge, but this has launched us into the streaming era in, in a way that you know years and years of use would have, but compacted into just a couple weeks. So the floodgates have opened. Well, I'd love yes. to hear a little <laughs> bit about your watch list. Let's start with film and television. Kalundra, what have you been streaming? Um, to be honest with you, I've been I've been streaming a little bit, but not a ton because I um, I work remotely, so my day is pretty full right now. 
because I'm normally so busy, my Netflix queue is crazy full. So I have had a chance to watch Self Made, the Madam C.J. Walker um, inspired story that's uh, starring Octavia Spencer. Um, for people who don't know who Madam C.J. Walker was, she is credited as being the first Black woman millionaire um, in the United States. And she um, made her wealth by creating a hair care line. Let's, let's hear just a little clip from the trailer of the Netflix series Self Made. Sisters, let's talk about hair. They put us down, tell us we're ugly, make us feel ugly. Wonderful hair leads to wonderful opportunities. Mama, you sure on something. And so that's a four-part series that is definitely interesting to watch. The period costuming is absolutely beautiful. Um, and I've also been catching up on like my really good cheesy CW shows like All American and Black Lightning, which are both very much created for people who are 16 years old, but have been completely entertaining for me. <laughs> well, this is a judgment-free zone, Calandra. How about to you, Jason? Films like Outbreak, really popular right now, speaking to our current preoccupation with the outbreak of disease. Netflix also debuted a docu-series called Pandemic just about a month ago, if I've got Got that right. Which was in the top 10 most watched for Netflix last weekend? Let's hear just a clip from that. What worries me is that it just takes one person to start an outbreak. We're basically human incubators. We can host a number of different diseases. It's just a matter of time where the next pandemic is going to start. We just don't know where or how, but we know it will. So is Pandemic a feature or a documentary series? It's a docu-series and uh, the folks at Netflix must feel like they have made all the right choices because they got production started on it well, obviously, well before the current crisis happened. And, and people should understand it's not about what we're currently experiencing, at least not exactly. This is about um, scientists and doctors investigating and looking into other pandemics, things like the Ebola outbreak in, in um, Africa, things like flu pandemics that we've had in the past. It's a wonderful series. Again, you're right, they debuted it a little more than a month ago. It's not what you see on CNN every day, but it helps with your understanding of what the doctors and scientists and health workers are going through. And it's there are a lot of people out there who sort of want a, an escape. And yeah. pandemic is not an escape. <laughs> <laughs> and another docudrama just released on Netflix, Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness. Number one on Netflix right now. Let's hear just a clip from the trailer. It's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. There are more captive tigers in the U.S. than there are in the wild throughout the world. Animal people are nuts, man. They're all crazy. I'm sure y'all got a story to tell. Either of you hooked on Tiger King? Oh my gosh, Tiger King is unbelievable. It's it's seven different episodes. They're about 45 minutes long each. Uh, uh, like Pandemic, it's a docu-series, so this isn't, this isn't made up, this is real, and it feels made up, it feels insane. It's about a guy, a, a rancher from Oklahoma, who lives with 200 lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. And his rival is a woman from Florida who thinks that big cats don't belong in cages. And it brings in this whole community of people who own exotic animals. And they're just the strangest people you will ever meet. Um, at one point, we're talking to a guy who has two prosthetic legs, like he lost both of his legs, and he says that he lost them in a zip lining accident. And the show doesn't even explore that. It's like, 
Okay, that's not even crazy enough for us to discuss in the show because the show has drug lords, it has polygamy, it has a guy who uses tiger cubs to lure women into threesomes, it has attempted murder. It is five of the most insane hours of TV you will ever watch. It's a perfect distraction in a time like this. <laughs> How about you, for you, Calendra? Any classic films or television shows that you think deserve to be watched or maybe even rewatched? Um, you know, it's so funny. I was talking to one of my friend's younger sisters, and she is being introduced to Spike Lee films <laughs> over the course uh-huh. of this. Um, she's, you know, Gen Z and I, you know, I'm a millennial and so she's a bit younger than me. And so I, I realized that like, you know, the Spike Lee era might've just passed her by. And so she watched do the right thing for the first time. And then I told her, I was like, go ahead and go down the rabbit hole, watch school days, watch, you know, um, jungle fever, watch Crooklyn, watch them all. Um, and then of course, if you're talking about really classic, classic films, if we're taking it further back, um, there's never to me a bad time to watch the or the Wizard of Oz to make you feel good. Um, we might all want to be in Oz if we're in the house much longer. <laughs> so <laughs> I recommend both of those. <laughs> Start clicking your ruby slippers together because we got to get out. Right. <laughs> There's some place better than home is going to be the new mantra. <laughs> well, does watching any of these old films feel differently while in, uh, let's call it voluntary house arrest? Is, is there an extra comfort in those in a time of anxiety or fear? Um, I mean, I think we all have our different TV shows and movies that we associate with like a special memory or laughter or whatever. Like I can watch a Gilmore Girls marathon any day of the week and it's a good thing for me, pandemic or not. So I think we all have those things that we love that make us feel good, but I'm not in the business of, nor do I ever condone like this kind of reality removal nostalgia. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we're in this and we need to know it because this is pressing, <laughs> but that's just, you know, my little short PSA. Well, but there are many who the escape from reality might actually <clears throat> provide some solace or comfort, you know, the kind of out there fictional narratives, dystopian stories and science fiction. Jason, anything you recommend along that line? Oh my goodness. I mean, there are so many of them. I- I'll tell you one of the shows that I think is really interesting. That's on Amazon prime, which is, uh, a twist on the comic book story is, is a program called The Boys. It came out last summer. It takes place in a world where superheroes are are pretty common, but they are not the superheroes that we're used to. They're not Superman and Batman. They're not these ideals. They, they're actually egotistical jerks who are mostly interested in their social media likes and in partying and having sex. And there's a big corporation that runs them. Like they only fight crime if this corporation gets paid. And the, the story is actually about a group of a, a, a group of folks called who are the boys who decide to who become vigilantes and decide to sort of strike back against these false superhero gods. There there's a, there's a lot of gore in it, but it's a, it, is, it is really well made. It takes the notion of the comic book hero and throws it on its head so much. I'm speaking with the Atlanta-based arts critics and writers, Calunder Smith and Jason Evans, giving us some recommendations for quarantainment or entertainment options to look into while folks have to stay inside. How about films that are out there in the theaters? Some of them are being offered online right now. Jason, are you, have you been keeping abreast of that? There are a ton of award winners. This is a great time of year for video on demand. Uh, you can see some of the films that just won Academy Awards 
for less than half the price of what a movie ticket would cost. Make sure you see Parasite, 1917, Ford versus Ferrari, Knives Out. All these films are on demand right now. And if you didn't see them in theaters, please watch them now. And, and the other thing is like, Look at last year's Emmys, for example. A, a, a series called Fleabag swept all the comedy Emmys, won Best Actress, Best Writing, Best Comedy Series. It's on Amazon Prime, and not enough people have seen Fleabag. Let's hear just a clip from that. Stop doing that to your face. No, I have to. I don't know what's wrong. I just... I look so good. It's okay. We can sort it out. Just take some of your makeup off. I'm not wearing any makeup. What? What has happened? I have no, never I don't seen know. you I just look woke up so looking good. amazing, and then everyone's going to think I got a f-ing facial for my mother's funeral. Oh, what the hell? You look incredible. I'm trying to mess her up. Just no matter what I do with my hair, it just keeps falling in this really chic way. It's the smartest comedy on television in the past five years, easily. Look up Academy Award winners. Look up Emmy winners. There'll be stuff that you haven't seen before that you absolutely should see. There's a Netflix documentary from last year called Free Solo that won the Academy Award for Best Documentary that is absolutely incredible. It's one of the greatest documentaries you'll ever watch. If you merely do that, you'll be watching incredible content, and there is weeks and weeks worth of it. Well, Calendra, you cover the arts, and since we can't go out to see live performances right now, many arts and culture organizations have stepped up. Their streaming productions, the Metropolitan Opera in New York and the Paris Opera, both providing free access. How about for local arts organizations, though, who are really taking a hit at this time? I have to say that local arts organizations have stepped up so tremendously, not only to provide entertainment for people during this time, but folks may not know, a lot of the costume designers and props designers at these various theaters in town are currently making surgical masks and sending them to hospitals. I Um, had no idea. The Atlanta Opera is doing this. The Alliance Theater is doing this. Um, I mean, it's it's really incredible that our local makers are really like, I mean, they're they're sewing them together and they're sending them to doctors and hospitals. So kudos to them for that. Um, there's a ton, though, that people can watch and they can support um, local arts. I know New America, the Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern has um, some shake, three different Shakespeare productions that are going to be available. So for those people who are homeschooling their kids and completely over it, um, you can <laughs> turn on some Shakespeare um, and give them that exposure and continue that literary education for your middle and high school kids. So that's going to be a great thing. Um, The Center for Puppetry Arts has some puppet shows that are available for free online that you can watch for those folks with little kids. Um, So it's not just stuff for adults, it's stuff for children and families. And then for the things for adults, if you're looking to like have that date night at the theater or to go to an art museum or whatever, know that the um, High Museum has some virtual tour things available. Synchronicity Theater through March 29th has their world premiere production of Wayfinding available to watch and all they're asking for is a pay what you can donation. And there's also um, some great stuff available through the Museum of Design Atlanta. They've got various classes where you can learn how to do all kinds of things available on um, their website. And you can watch a tutorial on everything from, you know, Lego building to cross stitching and it's all free, which is really amazing. And then Dad's Garage, which a lot of people love that improv and that sketch comedy and Lord knows we need laughter right now. Um, They've got content running on their Twitch channel, like 
all day long <laughs> of different improv and sketch comedy performers. So there are tons of ways to still engage with local arts organizations. And, you know, it's great to be able to see performances from Europe and from Broadway and stuff like that, which is all available now as well. But we really want our local arts ecosystem to remain healthy during this time. So I'm encouraging people like, if you watch, make a $5 donation if you were able to, because that goes a long way in sustaining our local arts organizations down the road when we are able to get back out the house. But during this, Jason, you hit on this at the top. This extended period is staying inside, taking in cultural content from home. Do you think that it is making us feel, I don't know, more connected if we're all watching the same kinds of things? So Netflix now has a way that you can literally watch something at the same time as other people. And then afterwards, you can all get together and discuss it. As you know, I'm, I'm very involved with the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. And one of the things I say about the festival is the discussions that we have after the films is one of the most valuable things that you get out of, out of those movies. And that's one of the things that I'm missing right now. I, I think that communal sharing of information, of perspectives is something that is going away because we're all staying indoors as we are supposed to. But that's all the more reason why we need to get together, whether it's phone calls, whether it's you know video chats, whatever service you may be using. We need to connect with other people. We need to, to share our perspectives on what we're experiencing, on what we're thinking about and all that kind of stuff. I, I recently, uh, one, of, one of my friends, one of my dear friends contacted me and said, hey, we're going to have a Zoom cocktail party. And there were six couples. We all got together. We all sat down on our couches. We had, we had cocktails. We had appetizers. My wife and I actually got dressed up. She put on makeup for the first time in a couple of days. <laughs> and, and we had a delightful hour or so of sharing our lives. And it was great. It was a ton of fun. Uh, and we're, we said, as soon as it ended, we all said, that was the best thing my, in my entire weekend. We're doing it again next week. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone needs to try and do that. Reach out to people. Just because we're physically cut off, we shouldn't be emotionally cut off from them. Kalender, how about for you? I will say I, I second that emotion. You know, I, I hate the idea of the term self-isolation because I don't think that, you know, physical isolation has to mean emotional, mental isolation. Um, I, you know, one of my best friends, her birthday was last weekend. We had a Google Hangouts birthday brunch for her, which was awesome. Um, and this is also a great time um, to be able to connect with friends who live other places. You know, I've got friends in California, New York, and, and all over, and we're um, actually going to be making use of Netflix party to watch what we hope is like the cheesiest possible movie um, on Saturday night. Um, okay, what? You have to reveal. Well, we haven't picked yet. So oh, I'll see. have to tell you when we come back. We're like, we're, we have like some options that we're like, is it, is it bad enough to do a drinking game too? Um, and the other there thing There are a lot of Adam Sandler movies that would work for that. <laughs> Netflix has a lot of Adam Sandler that is good. I cheesy. love Adam Sandler. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say the other thing that's also been really cool to engage with and talk to friends about is like these different Instagram concerts that uh, various artists have been doing. And it's been across genres. I mean, you could watch, I mean, I've seen Instagram concerts from like, Everybody, I feel like from like Garth Brooks and Patti Lapone to like Chloe and Hallie, who people um, 
may know them from the show Grownish or know them from Beyonce's label. Um, they did an Instagram concert yesterday. Um, Erica Badu did like a midnight concert over the weekend. I mean, it's been really cool to be able to get these like 10 minute quick little intimate concerts inside your favorite artists' homes too. So quick question there. How do you find out who's doing this when? You just follow them individually on Instagram? Is there any sort of central platform that says this is what's happening? So following them on Instagram is good. And then also there are some of the music um, magazines have been compiling a list. So if you check out like Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Billboard, they, some of them have compiled lists of when these various concerts are happening. And some of them are with con in conjunction with the World Health Organization to try to provide relief. A lot of great suggestions there. I want to thank Calundra Smith. She's a theater and arts critic based in Atlanta. You can follow her on Twitter at at Peace of K and on Instagram at Another Piece of K. Calundra, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And Jason Evans, an Atlanta-based film and TV critic, also worth following on Twitter. He's at Jason Duke Evans. Then that's E-V-A-N-S. Jason, thanks so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We're going to leave you with Grace Potter's version of Stuck in the Middle with You. It is a theme for the Netflix show Grace and Frankie, which is one of the things that is keeping a lot of people laughing at this time. Also applicable to the times. We've posted a list of some On Second Thought interviews for when you need a break from the news cycle. That's at gpbnews.org. On our Facebook page, GPB Radio's On Second Thought, and on Twitter at OST Talk. And you can subscribe to our shows for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Nicewanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. We're saying goodbye to intern Julia Sanders this week. Thank you so much, Julia, for working hard through what has become a very unconventional internship. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. Extra shout out to the cats, dogs, and garbage trucks that have made this episode feel especially homegrown. I'm Virginia Prescott, hoping that this unprecedented experience has at least opened up some time for you to do things that feel good and help sustain you through the social distance. Thank you so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. Show this to the right here.